Lord, the word that you put in my heart for today is uh, adoration. We just come here to adore you, to proclaim uh, the goodness of your name. Jesus, we just uh, sang out and shouted your name, and your word tells us that that is the name above every name, and that at your name, um, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord. Jesus, your name is a name that demons tremble at the sound of. Your name is a name that gives us authority to come before you in prayer and ask anything according to your will and to ask in faith. In your, in your name, your holy name, you respond. There's no other name that we can be saved but through your name, Jesus. God, if there be anything in our hearts today that would get in the way of us declaring your name, if there's anything at our hearts that need to tremble and leave at your name, in Jesus' name, we ask that you'd remove those things. Lord, we rebuke the enemy and any of his works or effects in our lives in the name of Jesus. We ask you, God, to remove his works over our life. God, if anyone here is oppressed today, oppressed by uh, family trauma, oppressed by demonic spirits, oppressed by addiction, would you release us from that oppression, Lord? We ask in Jesus' name. God, if those who are here who are struggling with illness or who are in pain, those who are watching online who are sick today or who are in pain, Lord, would you relieve them of their pain and replace it with your peace? God, would you remind us, remind those who are suffering that you are there with us as we suffer? But Lord, we're bold enough to ask you to pluck us out of that suffering. God, I pray today as we look at your word that you would humble us, challenge us, speak to us, God, and ask that your will would be done not just here in this place today, but each place that we go this week, God. We, we praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can find your seat. Um, welcome to Free Church. My name is Anthony. I'm pastor here of this church, and we are glad you are here. Um, some of you were able to wake up today and make it to church as we um, spring forward. This is actually my favorite day of the year because it means that we get an extra hour of daylight. And daylight is always a win, and I'm willing to sacrifice an hour of sleep to get it. Um, but some of you, you just can't deal, and it's going to take you a couple months to adjust, and then we'll get back to the old way so you can adjust again. I heard this is the last time we're doing it. I'm not sure if that's true yet or not. Uh, I want to get right into our message today. We are looking at the book of Daniel. And if I could ask you um, a few things, please. If you would um, take out your phone, and there's this thing on your phone called silent. It's, it's a pretty radical idea. Um, but you, if you have a, uh, depending on what kind of phone you have, there's all sorts of magic tricks for Samsung, for iPhones, for whatever you have. If you could silent that just so we could kind of create just a, an atmosphere of reverence to God today without any distraction and um, Snapchat and Instagram will wait. You can put those on hold for the next hour. Um, I promise those posts will still be there when we get out of here. Uh, but I'd like you to be able to focus in on the word of God today. Um, I believe that God wants to speak through his word as he always does. Uh, but God's put my, 
on my heart something specifically for this service that I didn't share at the last service, and so I want to be obedient to that and just have you guys um, be ready for what God wants to do. So the book of Daniel, just a, a quick recap. Um, in the year 605 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonian Empire um, sieges the city of Jerusalem for the first of three times, and over the course of 19 years, would exile thousands of Jewish people from their homeland to Babylon, just as he dispossessed other peoples from nations that he overtook. The goal for doing this was to train up the people that were captured in exiles in the ways of Babylon so that they could serve Babylon and oftentimes be sent back to where they came from um, to be able to be vassal rulers for Babylon in their own native countries of origin. And so in this first wave of exiles was a young man named Daniel and his friends Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, who Nebuchadnezzar would change their names to Belshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the first account of these four young men is that they refused to eat food from Nebuchadnezzar's table as a way to show that they depended on God and not on the gods of Nebuchadnezzar. We then read the account of Nebuchadnezzar's dream of a large statue made of gold, silver, bronze, copper, iron, etc., which represented the kingdoms that would come after Babylon that would all be crushed at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nebuchadnezzar told, um, sorry, Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar the dream, interpreted the dream for him, and then last week we discussed how in Nebuchadnezzar's wisdom, after being warned in that dream of what was to come, he built a 90-foot golden statue of himself because that's what you do when you're humble. And so he builds this statue. He commands people to worship it at its dedication whenever music would play. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were there. They refused to bow. Instead, they stood and for that were thrown into a fiery furnace where they were rescued by the Lord himself, which caused Nebuchadnezzar for the second time in the story to give praise to God. And so today we pick up this account in chapter 4, and I want to remind you the two themes that appear throughout this entire book of Daniel. And the first theme is how God sovereignly orchestrates the history of the world. God sovereignly orchestrates the events of this universe despite our actions in order to bring about his plans and his will for all of creation and then secondly, what the series is named after is this idea of living in exile or how we can live for God in an ungodly world and how God can use those who follow him in places that do not follow him whatsoever. And those are the themes that we're looking at. Both of these appear in today's account in chapter 4. And chapter 4 is incredible, not only because as is chapter 2 through 6 written in Assyrian, or not Assyrian, um, um, Aramaic, getting all my empires messed up. Um, Daniel 4, written in Aramaic, but Daniel chapter 4 is actually written by Nebuchadnezzar himself. And so this is a global dictator who has had at least tens upon tens of thousands of people killed for his own glory, who now is writing a chapter in the book of the Bible. And what he has to say is fascinating because he opens up chapter 4 with a psalm of praise and with a testimony towards the Lord Most High. And he does it as a prelude. We're going to see what happens, but before it happens, he's going to give this song, this testimony of God's goodness. And it's found in Daniel chapter 4, verse 1 through 3. He says this, 
King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. And then here's his song. How great are his signs. How mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And his dominion endures from generation to generation. And so this is a, again, global dictator now giving praise and glory and testimony to God. Nebuchadnezzar would go on throughout this chapter to now describe a dream he has. He does not expect those who serve him to tell him the dream and its interpretation. He's going to tell them the dream. And so he calls in all what are known as the Chaldeans, the enchanters, what they would see as magicians, sorcerers, fortune tellers, dream interpreters dream interpreters, astrologers to interpret his dream, and none there can interpret it. And so we then are introduced again to Daniel, who is living at the king's palace, who is second in command. Nebuchadnezzar knows that Daniel can interpret the dream. And so Nebuchadnezzar tells Daniel this dream in verse 10. He says this, the visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. Here's my dream. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth. And this tree's height was great. The tree grew and it became strong and its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth. The tree's leaves were beautiful and its fruit was abundant and in it was food for all. The beast of the field found shade under this tree, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from this tree. Just briefly, this is imagery that would have reminded the Hebrew people of the Garden of Eden. Just like Nebuchadnezzar's first dream was him represented as a head of gold on this statue being given dominion of the known world, just like Adam was given dominion, so too here is this tree representative of this Adam-like figure. It also reminds us of the tree of life that was in the midst of the Garden of Eden. It reminds us of the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And just like God had given every fruit from every tree of that garden except for the tree of knowledge of good and evil to eat from, so too in this dream does this tree feed all flesh, both mankind and animals alike. Keep in mind that Nebuchadnezzar has this dream in Babylon, which he had constructed the hanging gardens of Babylon for his wife. And so Babylon itself would have resembled Eden with these ziggurat-type mountain structures with palm trees and vegetation of all kinds here in this oasis in the desert. And just like in the Garden of Eden, God shows up or a divine being shows up, just as God appears to Adam, as the devil appears to Eve and to Adam, and a cherub is put to guard Eden after Adam and Eve were expelled Nebuchadnezzar describes an angel, a spiritual being, specifically a watcher that now meets him in this garden next to this tree in this dream. And he says in verse 13, I saw in my dream, behold, a watcher. Oh, a watcher is a, a class of spiritual being. We would 
typically call this an angel. This was an idea that this Mesopotamian culture would have been familiar with. And so he says, there's this divine being that comes and visits me in this dream. A holy one that came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud, and this is what he said, chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under the tree and the birds from under the branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth and bind the stump with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him, you notice the wording changes from the tree to him. Let him be wet with the dew of the heaven. Let his portion be with the beast in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's mind and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers. The decision has been made by the word of the holy ones to this end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and the Most High gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. So in the dream, Nebuchadnezzar says, God decrees that this tree be removed. This is a decision made by God so that mankind would know that it is God who rules and not the lowly men who sometimes are appointed over kingdoms like Nebuchadnezzar. And so Daniel's going to respond to this dream in verse 19. He says this, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. This is a bad omen. This is a dream which carries with it an act of judgment and Daniel is kind of saving face. He's like, I'm going to tell you the interpretation. You're not going to like it. That's on God, not on me. I hope it doesn't come to pass, but here's what's going to happen to you that's really horrible. Verse 20, the tree you saw is you, O king. You have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and your greatness reaches to the heavens and your dominion reaches to the ends of the earth. And I can imagine Nebuchadnezzar being like, that's me. It's incredible. Yes, this, this describes me so well. Verse 23. I just imagine Nebuchadnezzar has hair to flip too, by the way. Um, because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field and let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beast of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation. So this is the dream you've told me. Here's the interpretation. O king, it is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts in the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. 
And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom will be confirmed for you from that time that you know that heaven rules. So Daniel says, you're going to be driven out. You're going to lose your kingdom. You're going to live out in the wild. You're going to live like a creature, like a wild beast. And until you come to see that heaven rules and not you, you will stay. But once you realize it, you will be restored to your original power. So one who is represented like a tree in this dream, a tree that provides shade, a tree that provides food for all the beasts of the earth will himself become like a beast in order to know that it is God most high in heaven who rules and who gave Nebuchadnezzar the ability to rule on his behalf. Verse 27 is strange. So Daniel interprets the dream, and in verse 27, he closes out his thought with this. He says, therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. So I'm going to give you some advice, Nebuchadnezzar. Break off your sins. Start practicing righteousness. Break off your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, so that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. It's interesting. Daniel suggests that it's possible that God would relent of his decree and spare Nebuchadnezzar if Nebuchadnezzar would humble himself, if Nebuchadnezzar would repent of his sin, if Nebuchadnezzar would show mercy on those he had conquered. If he did right, maybe God will spare you, Nebuchadnezzar. And that's actually not beyond God's character. God does something similar in Exodus with Moses, God does something similar with King Hezekiah, who is told he will die and asks God to forgive him, and he gives him 15 years of more life. God does something similar with Abraham in the uh, events surrounding the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. So this is possible. So the question is, is God going to change his, or is, is Nebuchadnezzar going to change his tune, and will God actually rescue him from this event? So verse 29, he says this, one year later, so Nebuchadnezzar is writing this himself after the fact. He says, one year later, after the end of 12 months, he uses now third person, he, Nebuchadnezzar, I, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered, or the king looked out at the city and he says this, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. Look at all I've done. Look at how wonderful, look at how great and mighty I am. You see, Nebuchadnezzar does not learn his lesson. He still thinks that he is the tree. He thinks that he is the gold head on the statue he has failed to realize that he is actually the beast under the tree and that God is the tree who does whatever God wills. And so what Nebuchadnezzar has done is elevated himself up as a tree that reaches to the heavens. So he says this. 
How many of you have ever just said something ridiculously stupid? How many of you say really dumb stuff? How many of you post really, really, really stupid things on social media? I'd like to call a couple of you out right now, actually. Oh, I know. <laughs> we say the stupidest things. I'll look back on like memories on Facebook, things I posted 10, 11, 12 years ago. I'm like, I was the biggest idiot. And 10 or 11 years from now, I'll look back on things that I've posted. And I'm like, I was the biggest idiot. And it's only by God's grace and goodness that like, he's bringing me somewhere. I, I know I'm really screwed up, but at least I'm not as screwed up as I used to be. So we say stupid things. So while the words were still in his mouth, look how great I am, a voice came from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you, Nebuchadnezzar, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Have you ever sent a text message bad-mouthing someone? Sent a text message complaining about someone, but you actually sent it to that person because your mind thought about their name when you were trying to send it to someone else? Has that ever happened to you before? Pastor, we've never spoke ill of anyone in our lives. Teach me your holiness. Have you ever gossiped about someone, bad-mouthed someone, and they, they walk in on you or you realize they were standing in the door the entire time behind you while you were talking about them? Have you ever told a joke that it wasn't until the joke was already out of your mouth that you realized that was probably a little off color. That probably wasn't appropriate for this funeral, for this whatever serious event that you're at. You ever had a first world problem leave your mouth and as it's coming out of your mouth, you realize how ridiculous you are? We're blessed. Uh, our in-laws, my in-laws, it's my wife's family, not her in-laws, um, my in-laws um, give us a half a cow every year, like half, half a beef. Um, they, they make sure it's butchered and prepared. They're not just like, here's a half a cow. Um, <laughs> do with it as you want. So they, they give us a half a beef, and it's always in January. And so we were, we were putting this half a beef into our second refrigerator, and the words came out of my mouth, we can't fit all of our beef in here. We just have too much food. And I was like, oh, that didn't sound good. And God was like, hey, don't you know there's people that don't have any food? One time I was driving on I-5, just grieving over the fact that my speaker had blown. And I was listening to um, Moby, actually, good, good, good music. This is the early 2000s. And just blaring with a broken speaker that I'd blown. And I turned to my wife and I said, like, just complaining about how much we're struggling that our speaker had blown. And here on I-5 in the middle of nowhere was a man, like, 
at 11 at night holding a sign asking for food on the freeway, and God didn't put him there, but he might as well have. You stupid, you care about your blown speaker when there's people that don't even have their bare necessities. How does it feel when you say stupid things? Surely you know. How does it feel? Like when you say something dumb, like, oh, just like somebody punches you in the gut. Oh, that was really stupid. I'm an idiot. How does it feel? Imagine Nebuchadnezzar in this moment. Look how great I am. You got to go live in the field for seven periods. Verse 33, immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men, and he ate grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers. I never understood this analogy. I, don't, I still don't get it. Like, I'm trying to figure out, like, how long is an eagle feather? It's like that. That's not that long, you know, but, hey, still long. It's not like peacock feathers. But his hair grew long. We, we get an understanding his hair was short, and then it, how long did it grow? That long, an eagle feather. And this is where it's really disgusting and where I lose all respect for Nebuchadnezzar. It says his nails were like the bird's claws. You need to cut your, your fingernails. Um, as my son, he's just in the last couple of years has realized that cutting fingernails is important. But um, <laughs> sometimes young, young men will just like let them go. And it's not because they're trying to be fashionable. It's just that they're lazy. And it's disgusting. Everything you touch lives under those fingernails and grows and breeds and, and makes the world a worse place. Um, if you do your nails, keep them clean. It's acceptable, but just make sure you clean these guys out. They're really gross. His nails are like bird's claws. So what, what Nebuchadnezzar is trying to say, like, I was like a beast. I had nasty nails. I let my hair grow out. I was wet with dew. There's actually some, some um, not ancient, but some classical paintings and art of Nebuchadnezzar in this form. It's, it's kind of funny. He's like he's turning into like the Hulk. Um, but he's, he's in bad shape. So seven periods. We don't know how long this is. Some people say it's seven years. The Bible never says it's seven years, but seven periods of time pass. It could have been years. It could have been months. It could have been weeks. It's very certain it wasn't days. Um, it could have been literal seven seasons. We don't know, but it's a long period of time. Seven is kind of this number of completion. You're going to live like a beast until this season is complete. So a long time. Either way, Nebuchadnezzar is humbled by God. Nebuchadnezzar is made to experience a period of intense, what we would call mental illness. That's what he's experiencing. And I want to be very cautious as I say this, because if you are someone who experiences any form of mental illness, it's not because God is making this happen to you to humble you. This is just the occurrence in Nebuchadnezzar's life. Your, your mental illness, the mental illness that we may struggle with is not a judgment from God, but it is something that we have to experience God in and pray for healing and do what we can to restore ourselves and, and to live a, a helpful life. But he's made to experience this intense period of mental illness. He's forced like, to live like a beast under the shade of his tree. And he would live like this until God's work of humbling him had been completed. Now, the thing I love about Daniel is it talks about history so much. And, and there's a lot of history and archaeological finds that actually 
verify these accounts that are written in the Bible. We talked about that with the statue that was built by Nebuchadnezzar last week, but there's actually a document that has been found that looks like it references this exact event. There's a lot of words and lines that are missing on the document, but from what we can gather and some other historical sources, it looks like history does record this particular occurrence. And it suggests that Nebuchadnezzar's third-born son, his name was essentially Evil Marduk or Amel Marduk, it suggested that while Nebuchadnezzar experienced these seven periods of mental illness, living like a beast, that his third son ruled in his place. And that when Nebuchadnezzar was restored to the throne, when he was able to fulfill his duties, the document says, Nebuchadnezzar then um, comes out of retirement back into his role as king and imprisons his son for taking the throne. And it's while his son is in prison that Nebuchadnezzar dies. And that son then is um, basically sought after by his supporters, taken out of prison, put onto the throne as king so that his oldest brother doesn't take the throne. History's fascinating. So there is some evidence of this story taking place outside of Scripture. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson has a more exact documentation written about a very similar thing that he himself went to. So this is something that literally runs in their family. I want you to see that that there's things that God is doing to orchestrate human history. There's things going on all around us. It's a lot more than just us at our job on Monday morning. It's us and all of the spiritual realm surrounding us. It's me and you. It's you and me. It's us together. It's God Almighty. It's heaven and earth. All these things are going on. And I wanted to point out, because I've mentioned it two other times before, that the similarities between Nebuchadnezzar and Saddam Hussein, um, the past president of Iraq, is fascinating. Saddam Hussein declared himself literally to be Nebuchadnezzar. Specifically, he said, I am the son of Nebuchadnezzar. I am the descendant of Nebuchadnezzar. I am like Nebuchadnezzar. He sought out to rebuild Babylon, so much so that Saddam Hussein went into the ancient bricks that were in the ruins of the city of Babylon and stamped his seal of his name onto some of those bricks to say, I'm just like my father, Nebuchadnezzar, who built this city. He actually built one of his palaces on the ruins of Nebuchadnezzar's palace. He actually built... 90-foot-tall statues of himself all around his land. And on April 2003, when Iraq and its kingdom collapsed, Saddam Hussein went into hiding on a peasant's farm and lived literally in a hole for just about seven months. And when allied forces came and drug him out of the hole, he kind of looked a little bit like a beast. And he would be taken and tried for the destruction of his own people and hung and killed just a few months later. But Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't meet the same fate. Nebuchadnezzar would live to see another day. And so at the end of Nebuchadnezzar's allotted time of seven periods, He goes back to his first-person account of this experience. And just like the beginning of the chapter, 
Nebuchadnezzar bookends the chapter with a beautiful testimony of God's grace and what I believe is a very true conversion to worship the God of creation. And then he writes another psalm of praise. Let's read this in verse 34. Nebuchadnezzar says, At the end of the days, at the end of the seven periods, I, Nebuchadnezzar, I lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him who lives forever. And he writes this song. For God's dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Verse 36, Nebuchadnezzar says, at the same time my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Oh, man, here we go again. It looks like he's blown it again, but not just yet. He actually doesn't blow it. All he's saying is, I had a lot taken from me, and God brought it back. This is similar language to Job. I had a lot taken from me, but God multiplied more back to me. And so, Nebuchadnezzar, we are going to read his final words recorded in Scripture. It's the last we hear of him. Verse 37, the final words of Nebuchadnezzar recorded in Scripture are words of praise to the God of all creation. He says, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol, and honor, and I love what he says here, the king, the king of heaven. Nebuchadnezzar was a king. Nebuchadnezzar says, I worship the king of heaven. For all of his works are rights, and all of his ways are just. Here's our point for today. Those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. The last words we hear. God has the last word on Nebuchadnezzar. And I love that God's last word on Nebuchadnezzar is from Nebuchadnezzar himself. And Nebuchadnezzar would go on to die on October the 2nd, 562 BC, at 80 years old. And he would be replaced by his third son, Amal Marduk, And we'll talk more about that next week. But God has the last word. And with the last words out of Nebuchadnezzar's mouth, he praises God. All his works are right. All of his ways are are just. Essentially, what Nebuchadnezzar is saying is, I was used to bring judgment on Judah. I was humbled with this period of mental illness. My kingdom will fall. Another kingdom will rise, as I saw in my dream. But what he's saying is God is able to humble even me. 
And so these are stories that preach themselves. And I was praying about this because this is actually kind of a difficult story to to try to get something out of besides just this idea that like we should not be prideful. We should be humble. God's in control. This is the big theme. God is sovereignly orchestrating history. But as I was praying about it, here's what came to my mind as clear as day. And it's this. God did not give up on Nebuchadnezzar. God didn't give up on Nebuchadnezzar. God relentlessly chased him down with grace. It took Nebuchadnezzar being humbled three times in order for God to truly get the glory. And I'd like for you to reflect on a time in your life where you were rescued by God. If you consider yourself a Christian, look back on on God's story of salvation in your life and ask yourself, did he give up on me or did he chase me down? Was he always pursuing me? And when did I decide to humble myself and to trust in God instead? And I don't know about you, but I'm so grateful that God never gave up on me. I'm so grateful that God won't give up on my children. I'm grateful that God won't give up on people who step foot in this church. God doesn't give up on us. It's not God's desire that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so for whatever reason, God's just relentlessly pursuing the most evil man alive to have him put his faith in the Most High. Pride and faith cannot coexist. Arrogance and faith cannot coexist. Self-exaltation and faith cannot coexist. You can't boast and worship out of the same mouth. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, It's by grace that you have been saved. And that's received through faith. Paul writes, this is not your own doing, because even if it was of your own doing, you would boast about it. By grace, you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's not a result of works. This is a gift of God that you receive so that no one may boast. The only way to receive grace is through faith. It's only through faith that you can receive grace And the reason I'm bringing this up is because I want you to know that somebody who exalts themselves, someone who is proud, someone who boasts, they don't even think they need grace because they're so good. They're good enough. They have all they need. I have no need of salvation. I've never sinned. I've done no wrong. Everything I have is by my own doing. Why would I need grace? And so for them, faith isn't even the problem. The problem is pride, the pride that shows them that they don't even need grace because they're good enough all by themselves. This is actually the competing factor for our faith in the world today. It's not atheism. It's not progressive ideology. The issue of our day, just as it is in every day, but even more so today, the issue is people don't think they need God. People think they have enough or have it all or can become it all, all on their own. 
And I've heard this played out over the last couple of months. I've had different experiences with people, but I had a conversation with someone a few months ago that literally told me, I've never done something wrong before. And this was someone who was considerably older than me. I was like, that's wonderful. Wow. Jesus, tell me your ways. I've never done wrong. And and I've seen so many posts on social media. And social media it's a blessing and it's a curse because it really feeds into our pride. It feeds into our arrogance that we have to post the prettiest pictures with the best filters. And we always have to look a particular, a certain way. And it's sad. We're putting all of our focus basically into the mirror of our phones on social media instead of putting our focus into the one who created us to begin with. There's one um, social media influencers that I was following where, where this wife is a comedian and she's always like saying like, my husband's so great because he leaves his clothes in the closet and she, she's just so cute and bubbly and it's so funny. And, and then just a couple days ago, she's like, oh, we're getting a divorce. It's like, wait, but like yesterday, it was cute and fun and, and funny. But we only see what people show us. And so it becomes this machine that fills our greed, our lust for control, our power, our arrogance, our boastfulness, and our pride. And I've seen people share things often like, look at this thing that I purchased with the money that I made. Look at how I rescued myself from economic collapse. Look at how we've done this. And I'm just like, oh, pride is so dangerous because pride always leads to destruction. James 4, Peter says it himself in one of his letters, humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. The only way to know that you need grace is that you be humbled. Because if you're not humbled, you don't think you need it. And the only way to receive grace is through faith. And Nebuchadnezzar may have seen this circumstance as an utter embarrassment. Nebuchadnezzar thought that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were mocking him publicly for not bowing to his statue. Here, he is utterly humiliated. But God didn't see it that way. God saw these humiliating things as a means to soften Nebuchadnezzar's heart. God uses these things to show that Nebuchadnezzar, show to him that he needs grace. And God uses these humiliating events to force Nebuchadnezzar to have faith. And I'm just thinking about this now, actually. Like, consider the difference between Nebuchadnezzar and Ramses II in Egypt, who was the pharaoh. Um, who was ruler of Egypt during the life of Moses. God actually relentlessly pursued Pharaoh as well. But the more and more and more and more and more happened to him, the harder and harder and harder and harder his heart got. And you're like, but the Bible says God hardened his heart. Yeah, it does. God used those things to either harden his heart or soften his heart. Pastor, do you think Pharaoh could have repented? I do. I think we can all repent. But Nebuchadnezzar is different. He builds an idol to himself. But God uses these things and really softens his heart. 
it's cliche, but many of us have to hit rock bottom in order to look up to see that our help comes from above. And that's exactly what happens with Nebuchadnezzar. God forces him to have faith. And he says it with his own mouth. He says, I looked to heaven and my reason returned to me. Sometimes you have to hit bottom before you can reach up. So not only does God sovereignly orchestrate all of human history to bring about his plans for the world, God also sovereignly orchestrates human history to bring about his plans for my heart. And Kim didn't know we were going to talk about this in this detail today when she chose songs to lead us in. But the song we sang before I came up is called To the One. And the lyrics of that song, if you listen next time we sing it or listen on your way home, it's to the one who holds the stars. That's all creation, the universe. The one who holds the stars, we lift you higher. And then the song makes this juxtaposition to the one who holds my heart. There is no other like you. And so in a strange way, the God who is orchestrating and who created the stars is also orchestrating and creating in you a new heart. And sometimes it takes external forces in order to bring you into an internal realization that you need Jesus Christ. You could look at that on a a macro level, even when you think about like COVID-19. Some of you would never have met certain people. Some of you would not be getting married. Some of you would not be in this church. Some of you would not be at a job that you are in now if it wasn't for this horrible thing, COVID-19. God was using that to orchestrate history. What the enemy meant for evil, God was actually using for something good. And so there's good that comes out of these things. So God's orchestrating these things to humble us, and I don't want to be humiliated But if I'm in pride and if I'm so busy exalting myself and if I'm too busy boasting that I forget that I'm in need of grace and I lose my faith, I pray to God that God humiliates me. Because it's in my humiliation that hopefully I will hit bottom and reach for the heavens again. How many of you have been humiliated and God did use it? Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. God humbles the proud, but he gives grace. He exalts the humble. You have to humble yourself in order to see that you need the grace of God. And for those that don't know Jesus, if you're here and you just say, I don't have a relationship with Jesus, I don't know what this is all about. My prayer is that you, say, take a position of humility. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord today. For some of you, it might literally look like kneeling or bowing just as an act and a sign of outward humility that you are expressing with your heart. We don't raise our hands in worship because it feels good. It's it's actually awkward. But we raise our hands to say, it's not me, it's you. I surrender. I give up. I exalt you. I'm humbling myself. In order to humble myself and lower myself, i got to lift up the name of Jesus. That's why we do these things. And so if you don't know Jesus, my prayer is that you'd humble yourself. And if, and if you don't humble yourself, I actually hope that God humbles you. 
I don't want to see anybody humiliated, but for someone to be humiliated, if it means that they will turn to Jesus, then I'll applaud it, and I'll thank God for it. You need to know how desperately in need of God's grace you are. You need to have faith and look to the heavens so that your reason will return to you. So for the Christian, how do we, how do, we do this? How do we, how do we live in exile in regard to pride and humility? Um, I, I won't spend hardly any time on this, but I did make a little list. Um, these, these kind of sermons where you're walking through a book force you to make lists. So if you want to take a picture of this list, you can. I keep saying I'll post these lists. I haven't. I will. What, humble yourself. You humble yourself by putting the needs of others in front of your own needs. Humble yourself. Don't look at your achievements and possessions and then give anyone or anything credit besides God. So you get your first job, you got your first apartment, you're excited to walk in. Don't say, I did this. I worked hard and I... No, no, no. God gave this. Number three. Don't look down on or talk poorly of others. You don't know their story. There have been a lot of bad things to say about Nebuchadnezzar. Those who would have passed him in the wilderness, if they didn't recognize him, they wouldn't know his story. No one is beyond the hands of God's grace. Just like God is relentlessly pursuing you, so he is with others as well. And you don't know why they're on the street. You don't know why they're dancing to pay the bills. You don't know why they're addicted to that. You you don't know why. You don't know their story. Pastor, are you excusing them? No, I'm not excusing anything. I'm just saying you don't know. And you are one decision from being in the exact same spot. Number four, serve others. The Bible tells us essentially if you want to be great, serve Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to serve, to give my life as a ransom for many. If you want to humble yourself, serve. Number five, this one seems odd, but if you want to humble yourself, submit to authority. Submit to authority that God has put in your life. It might be your boss. It might be a governing power. It might be a mother, a father, a teacher. Speak well of those that God has put in authority over you and humble yourself by actually submitting to that authority and know that God placed it there. Number six seems weird, but listen carefully. Quit trying to be the Savior. This is one great way to humble yourself. In in the American, the Western Christian church, we have this bad habit of thinking that we go to other countries as missionaries to save people that are there. But oftentimes when we American Western Christians go to other countries to save people, we find ourselves being saved because of the humility and the graciousness of those we went to serve, they were actually serving us. So you're no one's savior. Quit trying to save people. Love people. Share the gospel with people. Let God do the saving. Invite people to church, but you're not the one that's going to drag them out of the mud. Only God can do that. Number seven, don't assume a position. Wait to be invited. 
Jesus tells a parable of someone who threw a dinner and a guest came in and they put themselves at the head of the table and the master, the host of the banquet was like, we didn't invite you to sit at that chair. You go and sit at the other chair. I'm going to invite the person who sat at the worst seat to come and sit at the best seat. If you want to humble yourself, don't walk into your new job tomorrow and think like, everyone, I'm all that. I have built an impressive resume. I'm here to take everyone's job. I am here to put myself in a position of power. And so everybody is on notice right now. I tell you what, that company is not excited to have you there once you start saying stuff like that. Don't assume a position. Wait to be invited. Number eight, talk about others more than you talk about you. Talk about others positively more than you talk about you. Don't be the person that just talks about themselves. Learn about people's lives. Humble yourself. Talk about people's stories. Ask them questions that will cause them to share about them. I mean, as I'm training young people into leadership, I always tell them, if you take someone out to dinner, one of the greatest compliments they could give you is, oh my gosh, you've eaten all your food and I haven't taken a bite because that means you were able to be a listening ear to them for the 30 minutes it took to eat. And you're like, yes, that's true. Now it's my turn. You talk. So talk about others more than yourself. And the final two, number nine, boast in the Lord. Share your testimony. Nebuchadnezzar shared his testimony, and he wrote a chapter in the Bible. If Nebuchadnezzar, who slaughtered tens of thousands of Jewish people and burned down the temple, if he can share a testimony, so can you. Share your testimony. And then finally, Thank others when you get ahead. Someone always paved the way for you to get where you are. That's a way to put others in front of yourself. Humble yourself. I want to thank this person. I want to thank this person. I want to thank this. Humble yourself. You didn't get there on your own. You didn't climb a ladder. Someone lifted you up to that position. But if you don't get this right, and we're all going to fail at it, if you don't get this right, if you continue exalting yourself, continue in your pride, God will humble you. So we must choose. Do we want to be a part of what God is doing and humble ourselves? Or do we want to be prideful and arrogant and be apart from it and do it our own way? And if that's the way we try to do it, God will establish his way and he'll humiliate us if that's what it takes. I'm ask you to bow your heads You could dim our lights a bit and we get ready to go into a song. I was talking with my friends, um, Ron and Julie, who are here today. We went on, uh, I was eating with them the other day, and they said, hey, on, um, it's Tuesday. Is God going to share with you something on your walk to share to the congregation? Because the last two Tuesdays, you, you've said that God gave you a word to share. And so I went that night walking, and I was like, nope, nothing. They... They jinxed it, and because um, that's how this works. But on Thursday night, I was walking in the exact same place that the Lord has given me some words of knowledge. He gave me one on Thursday night, and um, it's basically this. If you could turn down the stage lights a bit so I can see people, that'd be fantastic. Um, I was thinking about Nebuchadnezzar. 
And I was thinking about how God didn't give up on him. And, and I started, and I, I told a funny story at the last service. I, I don't have time now, but bottom line is, sometimes life feels like we're, um, we're floating a river. Have you ever floated a river in the summer before you get an inner tube and you, you float the river? Maybe, maybe you go on a kayak or a canoe, but when you float the river in an inner tube, you don't have a lot of control over where you go or what you do. And a lot of us feel like we're just drifting in life. Like, like I didn't choose for my husband to leave me here. I didn't choose to get fired. I didn't choose this family that's stuck in addiction. There's all these things that we did not choose for ourselves. And it feels like we're just on a tube in a river being carried at whatever the whim of the current is and that we have no control. And I want to say, I understand. That is what life seems like. Sometimes there are detours in the river. Sometimes there's, there's channels that go off to one side and meet up again down the road. And they may seem better. They may seem more thrilling and more exciting, but they're actually ones that we should not go down. And it seems like we're stuck. It seems like we're getting nowhere. And maybe if we just go on this detour, life will get a little bit more exciting. And it ends up, yeah, it really does get exciting, but in a really bad way. And losing that job or losing that spouse or being, having this or this or this happen to you, those aren't things that God brought upon you, but they are things that God allowed to happen, and I don't know why. But in hindsight, I know a little bit. This whole series is about how God is using things that seem completely random, completely evil, completely bad, to bring about his plan. Oh, COVID happened. My life fell apart. Oh, three years later, I have a new job because of that. COVID happened. My life fell apart. Oh, three years down the road, I now have this friend because of that. My spouse died, and I feel so alone. I'm so lonely. But, but God used that to build my trust in him. So things may seem like they're out of control, and even though people are out of control, even though the devil, forces of evil are out of control, God's somehow still orchestrating to bring you about to where he wants you to be, and he's really good at it. And for a lot of us, it takes actually being on our deathbed to realize it. Oh, wow, I, I see some of it now. And on the other side of the deathbed, as, as a Christian, a follower of Jesus, when we see Jesus in paradise, I, I think we'll understand a lot more. Now I get it. Now I understand I don't know why I lost that baby. I don't know why 
the house got foreclosed on. I don't know why my son struggled so badly with this, but God was still figuring it out, still working it out for me. And the Lord put on my heart so strongly, um, just to someone here today, that like you feel like you're at a place toward the end of your life, not that you're going to die even within the next couple decades, but like you say, like, yeah, I'm older. And, and you don't know what's next. And specifically what the Lord was showing me this Thursday night on the walk for this person was that you feel all these things happen to you, things that maybe weren't even bad things. It's all these things happened to you and you felt like you were out of control and just drifting down this river and you've been asking God, where's the purpose? What's the point? Why did we go through this fertility issue? Why did we go through this financial struggle? Why did I get stabbed in the back by this person? We, we start to, like, why? I don't get it. And you're, you're starting to question, and you feel like it's all for nothing. But the Lord wants to remind you today, as we've looked at Daniel chapter 4, it's all towards something. It's all for something. And I don't know if you noticed in Nebuchadnezzar, when he has the dream, the watcher angel in the dream says, I'm doing this so that you will know that the Most High rules. It's to an end. There is an end plan, an end goal in mind that God allows things to happen to get you to a place that you didn't even think you were going to. Now, if you'd say, Pastor, today this is me, the word's for me. I actually know who it's for. I might come tell you afterwards. But I, the reason I'm saying it now out loud is because it's always for other people too. The, the reason for this today is because you feel again like, like you don't know where you're going, but God wants you to know today, I'm taking you somewhere. Trust me. Trust me in the rapids. Trust me when the current doesn't seem to make any sense. Trust me when the wind is blowing the opposite direction. I am taking you somewhere. And if God didn't give up on Nebuchadnezzar, we're all messed up, but we're not that messed up. I don't think any of us have slaughtered tens of thousands of people before. I hope not. If God can relentlessly pursue that guy and never give up on him, I know he'll do the same for you. But we just have to stop and humble ourselves and say, yes, God, I need your grace. I need to submit my life to you. I need to surrender myself to you. And trust that wherever you lead me, that's where I'm supposed to go. And that doesn't mean be lazy or give up. It means, God, I need you to tell me when to paddle. God, I need you to tell me when to start swimming. I need you to tell me when I need, if I need to do anything to change course. You tell me, but in the meantime, I'm going to keep floating down this river. I'm going to keep trusting you. And when you tell me to do something different, I'll do it. But it's to something. God's taking you somewhere. And you don't know where it is, but God wants to remind you today, he's got a plan, 
He's got a purpose. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. God's getting you where you're supposed to go. And it feels now like heartache and it sucks and it hurts and you've been through hell, but it's for a purpose. God is working all things together for good to those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. And that's you. I'm going to ask you to do something very bold right now, if you would. Um, if you would say, like, Pastor, this, this word today is for me. I don't know where things are taking me in my life right now, and it feels like it's all been by chance. And I really need to know today that God's bringing me somewhere. Would you just make your way up to the front? Um, and we won't pray for you out loud or anything, but I just would like you, if you'd say, I, I am at a place where I know God He's taken me somewhere, but it doesn't feel like I need to know where I'm going, and, and I know that's for me. If you could just stand to your feet right now, come up here, and we're going to pray for those who that word applies to today. The tragedy, the heartache, the pain, it feels like it was for nothing, but God is bringing you somewhere. If you say, I need to know where God's taking me, I want to pray for you. If you're here today, and if you are in the midst of tragedy or heartache or you feel like you're going through hell, you feel like there's no out and, and you're ready and you're at a point where you'd like to humble yourself, would you just walk up to the front too? We'd love to pray for you as we sing. Like, I, I need to be humbled. I need to submit. I need to trust in the Lord. Anybody else can come up and say, that's, that's me today. I need, I need to lay down me and I need to pick up Christ. It's to something. You're going somewhere. Don't give up. God's bringing you somewhere. We have some of our leaders come up and lay hands on those up here to pray. God can use the drug-addicted parent. God can use the alcoholic father. God can use the disease. God can use the death. God can use the miscarriage. God can use the divorce. God can use being fired from your job. And some of you, you say, I've had a wonderful life, and I'm just confused where God has taken me. He wants you to know today it's all toward something. It's all toward something. So would you stand? Kim's going to lead us in a song. And if you'd like to come up and be prayed for for anything at all, we'd love to lay hands on you and pray for you today. But don't miss out on an opportunity to receive from the Lord today. He's, he's got you. He wants you to know you're his. We'll sing, and Kara will come and dismiss us here in a minute. But press into God during this closing time of prayer.